lecture twelve part two of the groundwork of the christian virtues by william bernard ullathorne this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture twelve the world without humility part two if we turn from the greek to the roman moralists we find them enamoured of the proudest as well as of the sternest of all systems that of the stoics the man who studies wisdom if we are to believe cicero thinks of nothing that is abject of nothing that is humble if the chief virtue of the greeks was magnanimity that of the romans was a stern fortitude not the christian fortitude but a fortitude based on the pantheistic notion of the divinity of the soul yet this divinity of the soul was limited in practice to men of honour and rank for the multitude whether of freemen or of slaves was looked upon with contempt satanic rather than humane this fortitude implied the scornful rejection of all providential humiliations and the presumption of an inward strength to resist and despise the chastisements of god observe says cicero that although good affections take the name of virtues that name belongs not properly to all of them for virtus avero virtue takes its name from manliness and the virtue proper to manliness is fortitude this is chiefly exercised in the contempt of fear and death again he says if there be any virtue and of that cato has removed all doubt that virtue looks upon all adversities that befall a man as beneath him so that in despising adversities he may scorn the trials of life and being innocent of criminality he may think that nothing concerns him but that virtue yet this cato the model of roman virtue was a man of stern and cruel pride who showed a positive indifference to his wife's purity and instead of enduring adversity with courage committed suicide to escape from it the pagans had no consciousness of sin for the very notion of it was excluded by the overmastering influence of their pride and by their self-deification they could not say with ephraim thou hast chastised me and i am instructed convert me and i shall be converted for thou art the lord my god and after i was converted i did penance jeremiah's chapter thirty one verses eighteen and nineteen left to themselves the punishment of pride was the paralysis of their conscience it has been said of seneca that he had imbibed some degree of christian doctrine and had even conversed with st paul if this were true the christian teaching never reached his soul the very root of his philosophy is the stoic doctrine that man is all-sufficient for himself and that he has the inherent power to scale the summit of virtue and to set himself on equality with god according to his teaching reason or the soul for he makes them one is nothing else than a part of the divine spirit merged in the human body and as reason is divine and there is no good without reason all good is divine 
and as there is no distinction in things divine there is no distinction between one good and another this confounding of the objective light of reason with the subjective soul is the false foundation of all pantheism from this view of things the philosopher concludes that the supreme good of man is to follow nature with the will of nature that the one virtue receives various forms according to the matter to which it is directed that all virtues are equal and that all men are equal by the exercise of this virtue joy is therefore equal to the strong and obstinate enduring of torments all this he deduces from his first position that the spirit of man is a part of the divinity merged in the human body which when a man dies is returned to its former elements from this notion of the divinity of the soul he concludes that nothing is so great nothing so strong as man he may be good just gentle temperate and acquire all virtues by dint of his own strength the pride of this philosopher goes to yet further excess there is something says seneca in which the wise man surpasses god god is without fear through the good of his nature and the wise man through his own good behold a great thing that man in his weakness should have the security of god incredible is the force of philosophy to repel the force of fortune no weapon finds a place in its body it is fortified and solid and as the weapon comes its way the philosopher bends and avoids it he shakes these things from him and hurls them back on him who sent them epictetus thought that the will of man had no object beyond itself and he taught a morality whose sole object was to concentrate the will upon self alone with the view of seeking all things as far as possible in self alone the philosophical emperor antoninus called the delight of mankind rendered worship to himself as being a part of the divine nature with all the stoics these men professedly sought their final end in themselves and if we take the most celebrated philosophers of the grecian schools one seeks his final end in health of body and mind another in honesty a third in wisdom a fourth in the contemplation of ideas a fifth in the science of numbers a sixth in the moderation of pleasure and so on but not one of them even among those who believed in the unity of god ever dreamed that god is the final end of man nor can any one of them unless it be pythagoras stand an examination into their moral conduct by the test of their own teaching low and defective as that was cicero admits as lactantius observes that the lives of the philosophers were far removed from their teaching and that their wisdom was more for ostentation than for the guidance of their lives and seneca remarks that these sages did not exhibit their doctrine in themselves plato zeno and the rest he tells us taught not how they themselves lived but how men ought to live there was not one of them who whilst privately teaching but one god 
and secretly despising the gods of the multitude did not offer their sacrifices to the popular gods as though they entirely believed in them origen truly says of them that their lives were so contrary to their knowledge that by the just judgment of god they lost the knowledge of the true god and of his divine providence and fell to such blindness and ignorance as to give that honour to corruptible creatures which was due to the eternal god it is even so and the revolt of the intellect from god leads straight to the revolt of the animal man and the egotism of the interior man breaks forth into the sensuous egotism of the exterior man he who is not subject to god cannot subject his lower to his higher nature the imagination which is the mental seat both of pride and sensuality becomes intensely active and puts the intelligence under an eclipse the sense of self-sufficiency arises in the absence of the sense of god and when he has lost the sense of accountability to god the man becomes accountable only to himself but when he is only accountable to his own pride what is there he will not do in secret devoid of every shame in their gods the poets deified their own vices and passions and the philosophers quoted them without any reprehension there were no martyrs to philosophy not one for they never opposed themselves to the vices oppressions or false opinions of those in power or went in their conduct against the world at large yet the gentiles had the natural law within their hearts nor were all their acts vicious for they did the natural works of the law some of them more some less as saint augustine tells evodius except that they did not worship god but worshipped vain inventions according to their national institutions serving the creature rather than the creator many of them led lives that were in a certain degree praiseworthy and in the rest of their morals they were chaste and sober and despised death for their country's sake and they kept faith with their fellow-citizens and even with their enemies and these things they deservedly set forth for imitation but when these habits are directed by no just or sincere motives of piety but go to the motive of conciliating human praise and glory even these virtues vanish into nothing so to speak and are barren to their possessor the secret of the heathen's heart was this by a prolonged alienation from god pride became rooted until it was taken for an element of nature and the spring of moral strength and from this the intellectual notion arose that the spirit within him was divine and so the man was sufficient for himself the loss of the knowledge of god led to the loss of the knowledge of sin and to such an obscuration of the conscience that the inner soul so little known so far from the all-revealing light of god was hidden from the man this explains the magnanimity of the greeks based altogether on self-sufficiency and the self-inebriating enthusiasm of the brahmins and buddhists 
based on emanative pantheism the law of virtue became the regulator of pride the pride rebuked by the heathen moralists and lashed by the satirists was not the principle of pride but the offensive and excessive manifestations of it that disturbed or inconvenienced the pride of other men no one dreamed that its roots were to be extirpated what was to be avoided was the too great obtrusion of one man's pride upon that of another from the virtues that moderated the exhibition of pride arose civil refinement public usefulness and pleasant friendship but the true spirit that lay beneath these social virtues is amply revealed in the chapter from the ethics already quoted the philosopher says further that the magnanimous man must speak and act openly for this is a characteristic of one that despises others he is bold in speech and therefore is apt to despise others and truth-telling except when he uses dissimulation but to the vulgar he ought to dissemble after describing the meek man as one who feels anger according to the dictates of reason and for a proper length of time the philosopher says but the meek man seems to err rather on the side of defect for he is not inclined to revenge but rather to forgive this accepted exposition will suffice to show that heathen virtue was but the management of pride yet god left not himself without a witness in the world at any time take that period when the roman empire was at the worst when either pantheism or materialism was the wisdom of the learned and the most corrupt idolatry and vice were the practice of the multitude as well as of their masters in that terrible period when the roman world was contending against the advancement of christianity the grave tertullian gives most remarkable evidence of the tendency among the common people to invoke the true god and proclaim their dependence on him notwithstanding all their idolatry and superstition in his book on the testimony of the soul he appeals to the heathen world and calls on all its men and women to bear witness that they know the god of the christians he declines to summon the men of letters from their schools and libraries he will not listen to the wise philosophers he calls upon all the rude simple and unsophisticated souls from the public ways the streets and the workshops he rests his cause in complete confidence upon those who have nothing but their souls to bring in evidence then the great apologist of the christians tells us that at every turn he hears this heathen people crying out quite naturally god grant it or if it please god thus ignoring the multitude of gods in their temples whether saturn juno mars or minerva nor are they ignorant of the nature of god for they say god is good and god be good to us and they know who is the author of blessings for like the christians they exclaim god bless you and they know that god is present and that he judges them for both at home and abroad without fear of ridicule or hindrance these poor pagans cry out 
well god sees all or i commend you to god or god reward you or god will judge between us and these things they say even though they carry about them the symbols of saturn of ceres or of isis and when they execrate evil deeds they will ascribe them to the demons or will call those persons demons who are malignant or impure all these observes tertullian are natural testimonies to the truth but where does he find these witnesses to the truth not among the learned disputers with their wise conceits but among the lowly the laboring and the suffering poor who as he says have nothing but their souls then he offers these shrewd remarks souls existed before letters speech before books and men before philosophers and poets did men never utter these speeches before there were books and theories did they never speak of the goodness of god or of death or of hell of which they now speak so openly and naturally before mercury was born let us suppose they have learnt all these from books yet the holy scriptures brought down the tradition of them long before those books were written and from those sacred pages alone could they have learnt to speak of god but god formed the conscience of man as well as the scriptures and nature also bears witness to him after contemplating this general testimony of souls to the christian's god the great apologist exclaims in an excess of fervour o soul thou art by nature christian after which he makes this appeal to the heathen's mind every soul is both a culprit and a witness of the truth and each soul shall stand at the judgment seat of god with nothing to plead in her defence thou didst proclaim the one god but thou didst not seek him thou didst execrate the demons yet thou didst adore the demons thou didst call god into judgment yet thou didst put no faith in the god whom thou didst call upon to judge thou didst admit of the eternal torments but didst not shun the eternal torments thou didst know the name of the christian's god yet thou didst persecute the christian this instinctive knowledge of the one god which lay deeper in the conscience than the superstitions encrusted upon it this spontaneous crying of the untutored populations to the true god in the habit of which their humble position preserved them undoubtedly prepared them to receive the gospel of christ whilst those who were cultivated in the falsely grounded philosophies which they called wisdom who held the high places of the world and who despised humility as something utterly ignominious and contemptible as their language to the christian martyrs showed remained for the most part for ages in their pride and darkness the frenzy of self-deification came not upon the world at once the parents of our race under satanical temptations aspired to be as gods but their fall quickly opened their eyes to the delusion after pride had caused apostasy from god the powers in the heavens were first idolized 
and then the powers of nature on the earth whether as causes of beneficence or as objects of fear the one they invoke to their aid as children invoke the objects of their fancy the other they strove to propitiate much as friday entreated the gun of robinson crusoe not to kill him then came the deification of heroes whether of a beneficent or destructive character such as the inventors of arts the founders of cities or mighty conquerors but after deifying their fellow-men the next step was to deify themselves this self-deification arose from causes that require careful consideration in looking on things far removed they are confounded in your vision one with another the mountains blend with the skies the hills blend together the woods cannot be distinguished from the soil the reason of this confusion is the faintness of the light reflected to the eye of the spectator from objects at so great a distance but the reverse of this may be the case the objects may be near the spectator and with full light upon them whilst the eyes are weak or diseased he then sees all things confusedly and without much power of distinguishing one thing from another the loss either of light or of sight is the loss of the power of distinction and thus one thing is confounded with another now what takes place in the understanding is not unlike what takes place in our corporal eyes the understanding is the eye of the soul and it sees its objects by the means of spiritual light if the eye of the soul is far removed from the spiritual light or if that eye is greatly disordered and obscured in either case and much more in the case of both the power of distinguishing is to a great degree lost children see mental truths in confusion and as it were blended together but as their mind strengthens and they are subjected to education they learn to distinguish truth from truth and one thing from another the process of education is chiefly by analysis it is the process of finding out the distinction of things that are united in one common light after the heathen world had departed from the true god had lost the clear knowledge of him and abandoned his worship after men had devoted themselves to the worship of the powers of nature and to their sculptured representations the lights of their mind became greatly diminished although they still retained a certain vague and indefinite notion of one supreme spirit as all the records of history bear witness the image of god was still in their souls however much obscured and they still retain some general notion however vague of a first cause of all things but with the loss of all definite knowledge of god the knowledge of him as their creator was lost and consequently they lost the knowledge of creation the primitive revelation of the creation of the world and of man had died out of their traditions the common notion of the heathen world was that all the elements of things had existed from everlasting although the forms of things were constantly undergoing change 
with even the wisest greeks creation was nothing more than the fashioning and forming of things that had an eternal existence in their elements they knew nothing of that power of god that creates from nothingness their maxim was that nothing is made from nothing but when the heathen world was brought to this obscure state of mind when they made almost everything a god except god himself when the earth made for the glory of god was almost reduced to a temple of idols when the human mind was brought to that state of darkness that men neither knew their creator nor even that they and the world around were created from nothing there came a reaction in the minds of men from the deification of the material creation to the deification of their own souls when men began to think more upon themselves or as we now say to philosophize the keenest intellects found a spiritual force in themselves and a principle of causation greater and more effective than all the material forces which they worshipped and believing all things to exist from eternity they concluded that their own rational spirits had existed from eternity remote from god in mind and heart inebriated with the love of that self which they imagined had existed from eternity and blinded with the pride that springs from self-love finding also in their reason certain principles that are universal and unchangeable though obscure in their light in the intoxication of their pride they lost the power of distinguishing between their subjective selves and the objective light of truth presented to their mind and confounded themselves with the eternal light finding in themselves a principle of causation they confounded this principle with the eternal cause observing in themselves an originating force they confounded this spiritual force with the eternal power in short as they had lost all knowledge of their creation they concluded that their souls were a portion or particle an emanation or an evolution from the one eternal divinity they did not go so far in absurdity as to imagine that each one was the whole divinity but they fancied themselves to be an element of that divinity the deification of heroes had its influence no doubt in confirming this notion for if the souls of certain men were found after their death to have been divine there was no reason why other men's souls should not be equally divine the result of this self-deification is to fill the soul with a terrible egotism elation and enthusiasm if the enthusiasm of the anomians against whom st chrysostom delivered his magnificent discourses was so great because they fancied they saw the very light of god if the enthusiasm of the greek monks of mount athos in the eighth century was not less because they imagined they could see the same light through the navel a delusion not unlike modern spiritism if the enthusiasm of the false ontologists led by malebranche was fervid because they thought the light of truth was seen in god 
if the enthusiasm of certain sects who imagine they have received assurance of an unchangeable justification is attended with a dreadful spiritual and even animal elation and with a proud contempt of others what must have been the inebriating enthusiasm of those who first imbibed the notion that their spiritual part was an emanation of the divinity but this false enthusiasm lends itself with terrible force to the propagation of its own fancies and is so exceedingly flattering to the pride of human nature that the doctrine of pantheism was rapidly diffused through the populations of india china and most of the asiatic nations pythagoras brought the doctrine from syria into south italy in the fifth century before christ and from him it spread among the philosophers of greece and invaded mighty rome the natural consequence of this super exaltation of the human spirit equalized with god was to look upon the material world and the human body as something utterly weak although strong enough to detain the spirit from returning to its first principle until the body was destroyed but they concluded that the soul alone was substantial and the body an illusion such is the final result of the inebriation of self-deification from this came the doctrine of the soul or mind of the world pervading all things and mingled with it imprisoned in bodies like a celestial fire or divine air and of the soul of man being a particle of the divine breath which virgil poetized and which was taught in the writings of seneca and in those of the emperor marcus antoninus in these terms there is one common substance distributed among countless bodies one soul distributed among infinite natures with their individual circumscriptions one intelligent soul though it seems divided how this soul returns to itself from inhabiting bodies the imperial philosopher expresses in these terms as bodies after a certain time are changed and dissolved and make way for other dead bodies souls are also transferred to the air where they are changed and fused and set on fire and received into the seminal region of the universe and thus give place to other souls that come into the same regions of the weakness of matter he thus speaks what ought we to fear from the death of the body and the departure of the soul consider the brevity of this life the immensity of our past and future life and the imbecility of all that is material then comes the conclusion as a matter of course that man is everything to himself these things says the emperor are proper to the soul endowed with reason she sees herself forms herself makes herself what she wishes to be and reaps the fruits that she bears the pagan systems of morals had no other foundation than this self-sufficiency not even the ethics of aristotle or the offices of cicero aristotle himself defines happiness as a certain energy of the soul the gauls celts and germans believed equally in a soul animating all nature 
united with all bodies and producing all phenomena whilst their druids or priests offered sacrifices to propitiate that spirit that he might not turn those phenomena into fearful and destructive forms end of lecture twelve part two